this week on Dig Me Out. Which makes me feel a little uncomfortable, to be honest. But is Would he there... singing about it about his wiener or his tongue? Both, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, that's about as deep as it gets. It's, and I don't know which that's... lips he's talking about. Tim and Jay review Happy Days by Catherine Wheel. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me for episode 158 of our third of our third of our fourth season. Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we are uh, we are at the beginning of our fourth season. We've already knocked out two. We're on our third review of season three. And we are hitting what I like to call the uh, the big ones for us. Bands that we had talked about previously, but maybe never actually got around to reviewing. Love Fest? Yeah. Well, yes and no. See if Try they to, hold up. See if they hold up. That's a good way to put it. Um some of these will. Some of these might show some wear and tear. Mm. Uh, I'm not just going to say which ones, but there's going to be some. I made a list of my to-dos for 2014. Is about 10 bands whose albums I think I want to get to this year. I encourage you to do the same thing, Jay. Get, pick, make a list of bands that you you've, you've wanted to be doing. You wanted to do for the last three years. We haven't gotten around to it, so we're going to do them this year and um, clean our plate going into season five. When we're going to do only bands we've never heard of. <laughs> I felt like we did a lot of that last year. but Well, luckily our, our su- listener suggestions provided us with a lot of good uh, bands we had not heard of. Like uh, mm-hmm. Jump Little Children, Spider Bait, and those bands. So, And we found some gems. So uh, hopefully there, our listeners will provide us with those same suggestions for uh, 2014. This one, however, is not a suggestion. Although people may have suggested in the past. I just don't remember. But we are going to review uh, one of the, I guess, most probably most mentioned bands in terms of bands that we've been influenced by as musicians and, and probably a lot as, you know, bands that have been brought up on this show. And that's Catherine Wheel. And we're going to talk about their third album, Happy Days. Now, Jay, what's your history with Catherine Wheel and specifically this album, Happy Days? Jeez, I'm trying to remember how I came to this album. <laughs> I'm drawing a blank. I discovered at some point in college, obviously. Uh, I sort of, I think I was aware of the previous albums, but didn't really get into them until this record. Mm-hmm. I don't know wh- why exactly. It must have been a friend turning me onto the record. Um, but I did buy the CD, you know, relatively new when it was had just come out, or I'd only been out, you know, a short amount of time. Um, and really got on, got into the band based on this record, then went back and you know got more familiar with the back catalog after that, and then followed up, followed them from this point forward. But uh, this is the this is definitely the album where I discovered you know them for you know all intents and purposes. Okay, I actually have a very specific memory of learning about this band, and it was also through this album. So our uh, former bandmate in college. He was my college roommate and your high school friend and grade school friend. I don't know how I think since birth you got you and Keith have been friends. Same wing of the hospital, same sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so I was a night guard in college. I used to work the midnight to eight a.m. shift at one of our uh, dorms, and Keith and I lived together over a summer 
I went to work one night, and he get, I was like, Keith, give me some CDs to listen to that I'm not really familiar with. And he gave me the Posies Frosting on the Beater. So this is like 96, I want to say. Summer, either summer of 96 or, yeah, summer 96 is what I think it was. Or 97, one or the other, one of the two. Anyway, he gives me Frosting on the Beater by the Posies, a few other albums, and Catherine Will Happy Days. Now, the... I, I had kind of known the other albums just by seeing the covers around the studio at the radio station. And I think I might have even played like Black Metallic on the air because it was his, it was a suggested cut and probably mm-hmm. some of the stuff off of, of Chrome. But I didn't get into the band. Like I just basically knew like one or two songs to play. Um, and then I got this album and I was like, holy crap, what is this? This is not what I was expecting mm-hmm. based on those, you know, two or three songs that I had heard before. Uh, and I became sort of an instant fan. And then in uh, when they put out a- Adam and Eve in 97, that I was pretty much hooked at that point. So that's my, you know, sort of history. I'm trying to remember what the other albums were that Keith gave me, but those are the two that sort of stuck out in my mind that I remember him, him giving to me. Being like, hey, you should... I mean, might, there might have been a Pixies album in there too, actually. Because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't into the Pixies when they actually were around. I was. It was many years later. So it might have been like... Doolittle or uh, uh, Trump Lamond might have been in that stack of CDs to check out. So I have Keith to thank for uh, my introduction. To yeah, Will. probably me too. I just can't pinpoint the, the, the time. And, you know, honestly, thinking at that that time, I can't even remember how it is that we shared music. Like, because I think we were past cassettes. It was just handing so, CDs to people. So he gave he actually gave you the CDs. I yeah, because the same thing for me. Cause. We were we were uh, roommates for a very short period of time. It's like three months. Um, it must have been summer '97 because uh, I had a different summer roommate for summer '96. So uh, summer '97 must have been Keith, and uh, I remember you know he had a CD collection and I had a CD collection. So occasionally there'd be some CD swapping back and forth. Yeah, so that makes sense. That would have been summer of 97. So uh, we talked a bit about our history with the band. Why don't we just talk about the history of Catherine Wheel? History of the band. So the band formed in 1990 in Great Yarmouth, England, comprised of singer-guitarist Rob Dickinson, guitarist Brian Futter, bassist David Hawes, or Dave Hawes, and drummer Neil Sims. The band performed on a Peel session in early of 1991 before they were actually signed to a label. Uh, They released two 12-inch vinyl EPs, which were released on the Norwich-based Wild Club Records, named for a regular weekly Wild Club gig run by Barry Newman at the Norwich Arts Center. Uh, That got them signed to Fontana Records, they were actually pursued by both Creation Records and Opal Records, which was run by Brian Eno. They released their debut album, uh, 1991 in the UK and 1992 in the United States, Ferment, which re, uh, featured some re-recorded versions of some of those early EPs. And in March of 2010, Ferment was re-released with bonus tracks and extra sleeve notes. What are you, what are you, what are you doing, Jay? Oh, you got a pee. Okay, well, we'll pause it so you can pee. Hello? Are you, are you back from your pee? <laughs> you yeah. could have just got up and left and not told me and been back, and I would have just been talking through the history, but since you made the bleep noise with the uh, with the chat, it, it made me stop. So. Oh, that's why I just... 
I thought you would just keep rolling. And then no, I, you, I was like, good. oh, you're peeing. Okay. <laughs> so here, oh. I'll, just, I'll go. Okay, so. Oh, come on. You need to know the history, too. There's some stuff in here. Bastard. Uh, in 1993, the band released their sophomore album, Chrome. It was produced by Gil Norton, famed producer Gil Norton. He also produced this album, Happy Days, released in 1995. It reached uh, number 163 in the United States, the highest charting album for the Catherine Wheel in the United States. They released the B-Sides and Outtakes collection, Like Cats and Dogs, in 1996. And following that, in 1997, they released Adam and Eve, which reached number 53 in the UK and number 178 in the US. Interesting enough... The Big Takeover, one of my favorite magazines, my pretty much the only magazine I still read for music. Um, it named Adam and Eve the number one album for 1997, beating out Radiohead's OK Computer at number two. The album was produced by Bob Ezrin and Garth Richardson. Garth Richardson is also known as Garth with three Gs, both <laughs> big-time producers. Uh, in 2000, Catherine Wheel, after having left... Uh, Fontana reemerged with a new label and new bassist Ben Ellis, and they also added the to the name, and released the album Wishville. There were record company issues, the sales were not good, and the band went on hiatus, from which they have never returned. Unlike other bands, um, Futter and Sims uh, have a project called Fifty Foot Monster. Ellis is in uh, a band called Seraphin. And Rob Dickinson has uh, continued to work uh, as a solo artist. And then he also has a job uh, modifying vintage Porsche 911s for a company called Singer Vehicle Design, which he runs out of Southern California. Uh, he did release a solo album, Fresh Wine for the Horses, in 2005. A couple other notes. Number one is there's an unofficial fifth member of Catherine Wheel, and that's Tim Freeze Green. Who was in the band Talk Talk? He's been a pro- either a producer or a musician on every album that they've released. Uh, he plays keyboards. He's basically provided a lot of studio work. And like with Talk Talk, he didn't tour with Catherine Wheel, even though he played on most of the albums. I guess in Talk Talk, he didn't like to tour either, so he just didn't tour with them. He was also not included in any like band photos or anything like that. He was just sort of there. Mm. And then the last thing is. If uh, there's a website called the Catherine Wheel Cover Compilation or CWCC.com, um, it's a project that was put together by some Catherine Wheel fans to create an online uh, resource for guitar tablature and notes about Catherine Wheel, but also for bands to basically cover Catherine Wheel songs. And then this website hosts them. And our band, Stepford Five, covered a B side of Catherine Wheel called Lucifer, and it's available for download via the Catherine Wheel cover compilation project. Lots of bands uh, contributed to that project, and there's a lot of good music on there. So they're st- And they're still looking for a few last Catherine Wheel songs to be covered, so if you want to go look at their list of what songs need to be covered and you want to cover one of them, uh, feel free to go right ahead. Of course, if you want to suggest an album for us to review, visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com. So, Jay, let's get into this record. We're going to be doing the original 14-song album. There is also a, on the vinyl version, there's an extra song called Glitter. But because it was not in the original CD, we're not going to include that song. Although I do like that song quite a bit. Uh, But we're going with the 14-song album. We're going to go track by track. We're going to rip through this. We're going to talk about Happy Days. 
So let's start with the opening track, Jay, and that is God Inside My Head. I gotta say, based on what I knew of Catherine Wheel going into this record, um, originally, this is kind of a shocker because it starts out <laughs> with like a metal riff, almost, um, and then these like booming toms and stuff like that. I mean, this is a great opening track for the album because it just sort of it just it it's got this riff that's totally unlike anything you've ever heard from them before, and there's no uh, none of that like tin can production that's on the first record. It's a little bit less on the second record, but it's definitely a lot more atmospheric sounding, whereas this is way, way in your face and clean, and it sounds much more studio than the other records did. Still, when I put this track on, it gives me like a little bit of goosebumps because it's so intense, which is a good word for most of this record. How is it going back and listening to uh, God Inside My Head? Well, I, I've gone back and listened to this record you know, through the years, and I, it seems like I have different reactions to it every time I go back. The uh, I've always thought of, I've always thought of this record as their reaction to Smashing Pumpkins, and sort of the heavier alternative rock hmm. that came out, um, kind of right after. Well, before you know, right after they, I think there was sort of a shoegaze thing in the early '90s that they were part of, right? Um, and this. Uh, you know, specifically the Smashing Pumpkins turned, I think, some of those notions of shoegaze with that guitar, you know, this wall of guitars and mixed it with metal and turned mm-hmm. it into this whole new thing. And I always think of this record as their reaction to to, to the Smashing Pumpkins. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not, but I can't help but think when I listen to a song like this of their influence. So you got the, you know, the big Tom part, you got really really compressed guitars you know, kind of a chunky riff but also they open up into big chords here and there uh, you know now for this review when i've gone back and listened to it it's held up very well there's mm-hmm. been other times like a couple of years ago i went back and listened to it and it sounded a little bit more contrived to me but uh i don't know it all makes sense to me right now they do dynamics really well and this is this song is a good example of that where uh you know, kind of you get that sense of like swirling chaos Mm-hmm. You know, like the this whole idea of, you know, God inside my head being in this sort of trapped in your own mind. And they really convey that with the song, I think, with the drum parts and just the the vocal approach. And it really does capture that that sense of, you know, chaos in your mind kind of thing. Well, there's a definite sort of theme running through this record. I mean, the album's called Happy Days. Clearly, that's ironic. Uh, there's sort of this... There's To me, there's two kinds of songs on this record, and we'll get to them, but there's sort of like, I'm going crazy songs, Mm -hmm. and then there's the, uh, 
what's causing it, which is love. There's lots of references to um, love and sex and relationships, and not necessarily in the most flattering manner. Mm. Uh, but, but we'll get to them. It is also, it's, I think it's important to mention that Rob Dickinson is the, what, nephew of Bruce Dickinson or cousin, cousin. or something like that? Yeah, cousin. Cousins, yeah. And Iron Maiden is a medieval torture device, as is Catherine Wheel is a medieval torture device. Yeah. Um, so I think this album, I mean, is really the start of the Rob Dickinson persona. Uh, I, I think he's pretty, pretty locked in with the band on the first two records as a yeah. vocalist. And, mm-hmm. and this track starts off with him showing personality, which is something mm-hmm. that did not exist. And I don't know if it, if that's from like he had a talk with Bruce, and when Bruce was like, "Dude, you better start throwing up some devil horns and like making and rocking out because you need to." Uh, I don't know if, what kind of relationship they have, but yeah. I, I think that Smashing Pumpkins connection is spot on because the Pumpkins definitely made made it a right to have a heavier metal guitar sound. Um, in your repertoire, not necessarily be a metal band, but something that you could break out. You know, Billy Corgan can rip off sort of a metal solo and it not be a big deal. And they can have big riffs. And and Catherine will definitely started with this record. I mean, this is an anomaly in their record because the next album sort of takes the, I guess the the personality and the big guitar rock of this record, but sort of strips it down a little bit. Um, so this is a sort of I think of this as like a transitional record, and like you mentioned, sort of a reactionary record. Um, it definitely caused a division in the Catherine Wheel fan base because a lot of people were like, "What the hell?" Because yeah. they wanted another ferment or chrome, and this is definitely not that. But uh, I think this is a good, you know, point to jump into track two, "Way Down," which is another song about sort of mental decline and more Rob Dickinson personality. And you can see it in the video for this song, like he's. Hamming, hamming it up in the video like they were definitely taking their shot with a single it has the loud you know quite loud verse chorus and reminded me of like just how good a guitar based band this band is not that you don't get that on the other records but this band is very versatile um, in their guitar playing and there's all sorts of really cool guitar stuff going on in this song and throughout the record but does way down hold up for you as well it does. Um, it shows, I think your point about him becoming a personality comes out in this song. You know, he does a lot of different like sounds with his voice and cries and noises and just, and, you know, he expresses a personality outside of just singing the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this song is, is definitely the first notion of that. I think there's some familiarity with some sense of the earlier albums in this song. It's just everything's cranked up, you know, the intensity. It's faster. Uh, you know these song these these chords for this song could if you slowed them down and maybe you know took took out some of the intensity they could fit on a on a chrome but um, that's not the case on this record everything's cranked up everything's louder crunchier faster more expressive more intense one thing that kind of occurred to me in this song outside of the guitar work which I I totally agree with there's some great like tremolo tremolo uh, stuff going on in the solo lots of pitch bends and cool stuff this song did remind me quite a bit of Bush which is a band that's come up here and there for no other reason than it seemed like they just kind of took over alternative radio, you know, for a good portion of the 90s, at least in America. Right. And it just made me think, like, this song is every, just from a pop, it's, it's light years ahead of anything Bush ever did from an artistic standpoint. But even from a commercial standpoint, you know, it's, 
it's just as good or better than anything they did. It kind of, it just brought up the, the idea to me of, um, you know, why didn't, why didn't any of these songs really break through in that way? You know, I mean, this band was, they did fine. They toured for a long time and they put out a couple more records and they've all gone out and done other, done other things, but they never really had that huge commercial success. And, you know, when I listen to a song like this, I can't help but wonder why that, why that is. That's a good question. Uh, Catherine Wheel, I think, are a little bit smarter. And I also think if you watch the video, it's almost a little, like, sinister. Um, and I don't know if Rob Dickinson played as well visually as, say, Gavin Rossdale does. Gavin Rossdale's a pretty man, still is. And I don't know that Rob mm. Dickinson is quite as... Rob Dickinson looks like he could play the mm. villain in a... You know, yeah, he's a handsome a, guy, but yeah, he comes off as a little bit more of the devil than the right, the uh, angsty teen. Right, exactly. <laughs> he's a little more 007. Right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and Governor also is a little more Hugh Grant. So. Right. <laughs> well put. That doesn't. Uh, yeah. Right, so uh, what about what about Little Muscle? That's uh, a song for me. When you go back and listen to it, how do you feel about that? You know. It's an interesting song. I don't know if it holds up as well as I thought I was going to. There's a lot of little cool touches that are in that song, like with, yeah. uh, I guess it'd be like a slide, and I don't know if it's a lap steal or something like that, but there's just cool little things going on. Um, the lyrics are a little bit on the nose, um, a little bit too... There's there's not much uh, analogy going on or, or uh, deep meaning, I don't yeah. think. Um, which makes me feel a little uncomfortable, to be honest. But is Were he there... singing about it about his wiener or his tongue? Both, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's about as deep as it gets. It's and just, I don't know which that's... lips he's talking about. And yeah, it's exactly. uh, it's just a little bit uncomfortable. It's a little. I don't want my bands to go too deep into the Barry White yep. end of things. Um, leave that to Barry White. And uh, so I don't know. What about you? I'm I'm in the same place. I, it's it's a fun from a dynamics, just a pure music standpoint. It's a fun burst of energy. You know, sure, it's only three minutes. Um, they go to extremes of you know being as loud as possible and being quiet as possible. And there's some nice little moments in it. But uh, I've always struggled with the uh, just how direct the just you know lyrically. It's, it's it sometimes it doesn't bother me, and I kind of think it's kind of fun. And then there's other times where it's a little bit you know cringeworthy. So I'm on the fence with it still. Um, I'm back and forth. Now, a song that I was worried was not going to stand up for me, but still does, is Heal. Um, this is a song I loved when I first heard this record, and I immediately like tried to figure it out on guitar. Um, and the lyrics have always stuck with me because he's able to sort of create these phrases that are sound universal, don't necessarily have to make perfect sense, there's a line when he gets to uh, sort of midpoint of this song where he says, everyone needs someone to live by, which, you know, you can take that kind of in different ways. I always took it as like everyone needs someone to like look up to or to guide them. But then he tw- sort of twists it and he says, but it's all a lie. It's a lie to make you beg. And I'm like, I've always wondered like if he's basically saying that like you should not follow uh, you don't need to follow someone. You should make your own. You should follow your own path. Obviously, I tried to get him on the show, but he's busy designing Porsche, so <laughs> he, I don't have an opportunity to ask him uh, such a thing. But uh, 
I've always been amazed that this song is so good, but is so not complex. It's basically a, a five chord progression that just goes throughout the verse and the chorus, and there's some bridges in there that change up some chords here and there, but it's it's kind of a simple song at its core. It's just using dynamics to change things up. Yeah, it's 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 big. Um, I love that it starts with the chorus, and then it kicks into those verses, and it's got these big swirling guitars. It almost, you know, it feels anthemic. It, it mm. still has some shoegaze quality to it, but it goes into a whole other place. I think it's indicative of all the albums to follow you know this this style this mix of elements works really well mm-hmm. i think the thing that really um though that that separates this song into something special is just the whole outro which is a good couple minutes of the song mm-hmm. um it just it keeps breaking down and breaking down and it almost turns into like a hymn to where like you know this idea of healing or heal it's sort of like tra- you know you start in in an area of um, bit of chaos and you know you know belting things out and then everything just gets kind of quiet and calm and almost resolved you know in, in some sense of sense of the, of the word but uh, I've always loved the shift in the song I tell you you can almost it's almost two songs in, in some ways yeah. but um, they, they just they blend so well together that uh, I think some other albums we we've reviewed where they do that it doesn't work quite as well because there's such an abrupt shift whereas mm-hmm. this kind of it devolves into that you know just organ and him singing and those lines that you just mentioned about you know everybody needs someone to live by so yeah i i've i like this song when when i heard it and uh it holds up really well track five empty head i'm calling this the uh 90s band attacks 90s music song uh <laughs> Which it seems like in a lot of albums that we've been reviewing lately, um, there is a track in which they sort of take a shot at the music that's actually occurring, like with Super Drag, Sucked Out, which is clearly about uh, who's, you know, sort of emotion and uh, feeling being sucked out of, of pop songwriting for commercial purposes. Um, and this is a song 
that uh, is sort of decrying the banality of, uh, of pop music. And he's singing Empty Head, It Feels Good. Um, of all the pop, what is it? All the, of all the popular things um, a popular song can bring. What is, how does the lyric go? Of all the things. I can't remember. I had it in my head like two seconds ago. Yeah. Uh, thing I hate the most is. Uh, shit, I can't believe I forgot. Anyway. A, p- a permanent picture of. A permanent picture of hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, love the, I love that aspect of the song. Um, I like when bands sort of tweak their own profession. I'm actually, I think I've decided today I'm going to make a list of all the songs that, uh, in the 90s that are about songs in the 90s. <laughs> I think that would be actually kind of a funny list. Yeah. Because uh, there's quite a few besides Sucked Out. And um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that we had recently, but uh, I know there's been a couple. So uh, this is a song that, that stood up for me. Again, this album is so intense and so in your face with the guitars and the drums and everything is vocal um, that even though we're only five songs into the album, it feels like you're like into like way deep into an album. Uh, I don't know if you got that same sort of feeling with it. Yeah, there's a lot to take in on this record. There's no doubt about that. Um, so by this point, you've 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 written a pretty good roller coaster of bursts of energy to anthemic you know big choruses to hymns to you know shoegaze to you know you've run a pretty good gamut here so you know this is this is a this is a good track i mean it's got a big grunge sound kind of a commercial grunge sound some chunky big guitars i think the the one thing that stood out to me is um you know how the chorus is delivering the song it's almost a gang vocal which for them i don't know ever done that before no uh <laughs> but you know it's it, it works it works pretty well um there's some pretty cool um layering of guitars at the end where it's like you know solo on top of solo on top of lead on top of you know outro guitar to mm-hmm. it almost gets to the point where there's a guitar at the end and it, it, that it, uh it sounds a little bit like maiden you know <laughs> you know i appreciate that part of it and this it's song pairs yeah, and this song pairs well with the next big rock song, which is Receive, um, which I used to dedicate to my uh, friends who were smokers because of the chorus where he says, uh, I destroy myself. I know, I know, I know. Like, he's basically like, I know I'm doing this bad thing and I don't give a shit. <laughs> well, and that's that really stood out to me. Um, there, there, there's that lyric and there's a lyric on Kill My Soul, which we'll get to later, but they both have a sentiment of, you know, it's a typical... You know, woes me. I'm hurting myself. I'm destructive. Kind of '90s theme, right? That you hear from a lot of bands. That most of the time they do it in a way that's very like, you know, feel sorry for me. You know, my parents were so mean, or you know, my life sucks. I'm I'm addicted to drugs. You know, whatever it is. But the fact that he throws in that, I know, I know, I know, totally makes it work for me. It turns mm-hmm. it into something that's just typical, like self loathing, self loathing, boring crap. To being completely aware which is a different it's a a totally different sentiment you know what i mean where you're right yes we all do those things but it's a different thing to be doing those things and be self-aware that you're doing those things so that little that little line delivery not only the attitude of that how he says it and how he works in the chorus but just the fact that that exists to me makes a huge difference in how you know in 2014 you can appreciate this song uh, track seven is my exhibition, which not only being the shortest song on the record at about two and a half minutes, it's probably one of the shortest songs in the Catherine Will catalog. 
if not the shortest. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely alone in the Catherine Wood catalog, featuring one of the most blazing guitar solos out of the first <laughs> chorus, which sounds like it's off of a Maiden uh, album. has like a almost like a punk energy to it this song mm. it's always yeah. and his voice is distorted on it i've always loved this song listening to it recently in the car driving like 80 miles an hour during the holidays trying to beat traffic uh this was definitely a uh, useful song to uh, uh have for the right attitude for that sort of a commute it's just it's so un unlike anything that they did prior to this record i don't know I, I can imagine that this was probably the song that put a people a lot of people over the edge who were like this isn't black metallic yeah you know this is basically the opposite of black metallic yeah but it shows that these guys you know have real emotions that we have too you know what i mean it's like they're not they're full they're full uh, human beings <laughs> right I mean? they get angsty and they get angry and you know what i mean so you're right sound wise it's it's more punk and almost industrial sounding. you know the way the drum beat is real machine like almost mm -hmm. and really sharp sounding and that guitar riff is their solo is crazy you know it's it's really cool i mean it's a it's just a at this time in 1995 a song like this is just such a breath of fresh air in some mm -hmm. ways you know for for people who are really you know deeply absorbed in what was going on in music you know to kind of hear a band just be like you know screw it this is what we feel right now you know what i mean and uh that's that's how the song has always felt to me it's just them really just pouring everything they have into two minutes and 27 seconds um in terms of uh being a little bit angry from the shortest song on the record to the longest song on the record we get to Eat my dust, you insensitive fuck. Uh, so this will be getting the censored uh, adult tag on the iTunes list. Pairs with one of my favorite songs of the record because it's so cool in that it's completely opposite, again, of what you're expecting. It has a harmonica, which sounds totally awesome. Nothing that John Popper would have ever done. They actually put <laughs> effects on the harmonica. Yeah. And it's yeah. cool how they introduce it. It comes in like almost on a like a tremolo or a delay or something. So yeah. it sort of like rises up out of the song. And then all of a sudden you've got a harmonica uh, sort of twisting and turning. Um, and it takes a while to get to the chorus. I like that it takes a while to build to it. And then it pays off with like this. It's sort of this dark, you know, 
finger-picked, or, or I don't know if it's finger-picked exactly how they played it, but it's just this arpeggioed chord that he's mm-hmm. playing, and then it opens up in this real pretty chorus, and then he releases <laughs> one of the nastiest choruses uh, lyrically that you can yeah. ever imagine. Just kind of brilliant in that way. He's able to play off of your expectations of like, oh, this is where he'll say something nice, but actually he's calling someone insensitive fuck, so... Yeah, this lyric in the previous song would have been nearly as effective as it is in this song, you know? So right. the fact that he's singing, it opens up into this really pretty chorus, and the, the lyric he's singing over it is what, that, that contrast is what makes it work. You know, this is also, again, like Heal, I think is a little indicative of the pre, the albums that precede this, where they they indulge probably the Pink Floyd <laughs> part of them you know growing mm-hmm. up i'm sure that, that that was an influential band to them uh, at least the oh, middle yeah. and late era pink floyd and this is a song where they they dig into you know what is that how do they interpret that style of, of, of rock music you know the keyboards on this are amazing you know it kind of makes makes the song sets the mood it really helped fill the space um to make a really slow song work really well so that mixed with the harmonica and just the overall, you know, lyric and delivery of everything takes a eight minute song and makes it, you know, seem a lot shorter than that and mm-hmm. you don't get bored. Yeah, absolutely. Now I mentioned about this being a pretty intense record. I think if you had thrown like maybe two instrumentals somewhere in there, this would have been like a great ten song record. But you're basically halfway through the record at this point. Like this is an intense Listen, like I'm exhausted by the time I reach Eat My yeah. Dust. But they still got half the record to go. So you get into um, the latter half. And I think this starts to show where the indulgence of a 79-minute or 78-minute CD comes into play. I think yeah. the back half of the record is not quite as strong um, as, the, as the first half. Shocking is the uh, track nine. They introduce uh, strings on this record. Around the song, mm. um, which works and kind of doesn't work. You know, they, they had such an intensity to the first half of the record. It's almost uh, shocking to pun, use a pun that they actually use strings at this point. Uh, but this is not one of those songs where I'm like, I have to listen to Shocking. Like, I'll often skip this song. I think it's a fine album track, but it doesn't necessarily make me want to listen to it. What about you? Uh, I feel like, again, it it feels a little anthemic to me, and I like that on them. I, I forgive the strings because I think the melody that they play is so important to to the parts they're in. So that intro, when, when the strings are in there, they kind of do that, you know, they do that high mm-hmm. run, which totally, it, it takes what's, you know, a, a simple chord progression and turns it into an, to something more. Um, it would have been kind of cool if they could have done that maybe on a guitar or some maybe more of an organ because it is a little bit weird to hear that string. It, it almost seems like at this point in the record, just uh, I don't know. It's interesting because it's like as you go through the record, they keep they mix in all these rockers, rocking songs, right, that are high energy and up tempo, and then they go into these songs where they they almost one up themselves. You know what I mean? It's like okay, well. We did heal, so we kind of did a big, you know, ballady kind of thing. Um, now we're gonna do "Eat My Dust," which we're gonna start introducing this organ that plays a huge role in a harmonica. 
now we're going to do shocking where we introduce, you know, strings. It's like, you know, every song is like, you think you heard it all? Well, how about this? Or right. How about this? <laughs> so there's some aspect of it that, you know, I kind of find that, 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 um, that fun. I like the song. It, I, I guess in my, in my notes, the one thing of, of interest, I guess, would be I love the falsetto in the chorus. And it almost it made me wonder if this is a song they ever even played live or could play live because the uh, it seems like there's so many vocal layers that would be in, mm-hmm. so important to pulling this off. I don't know if they could. could do I it do or like not. that. I do like that part. It, yeah. It's uh, it's a cool part. This makes me think that there's a bit more of a. No, I could hear not 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 necessarily this song, but this there's there's some like influence of like a a glam element to this song. Uh, in the old school, like British glam rock, sort of, uh, which I'm thinking like Velvet Goldmine ish. I know I've mentioned mm. that before, but like that sort of uh, Bowie uh, sort of aspect. Yeah. Love Tips Up, track 10. Uh, another good, I sort of album track. Again, not one that I necessarily want to listen to or seek out, but I don't skip it when the record's on. Um, it's just sort of a fine album track. Yeah, I think the uh, that second half of this record, like you mentioned, uh, at the time it came out, I really was you know intensely listening to this record. Well, you know, these are the songs that you're right. I would I wouldn't skip past them, but I would sort of forget about them a little bit. You know, sort of days out, doze out when they would go on and perk back up when Judy Staring at the Stars came out or Staring at the Sun would come on. Now, when I go back and listen to it, these are songs that I guess I'm appreciating more. Um, mm-hmm. With this again, I think the verse is very reminiscent of, of the Pumpkins, but by the time they get to the chorus, I think why it stands out to me is that I recognize that Pumpkins influence a little bit, or just the, them looking at how to kind of you know work within that idea. But when they get to the chorus, it goes into places that you know the Pumpkins could never do, and I think the vocal on this song is really really good. Um, very one of the stronger vocals I think on the whole record. Um, you know, it's big and sweeping and just takes twists and turns once you get to that more melodic part of the chorus that, uh, you know, kind of sets them apart and makes them unique. So this was a song that, that it actually kind of stood out to me a little bit that maybe because I had overlooked it for so long, I, I appreciate it more than I think I did then. I think it's just because the first half of the record is so up-tempo and in-your-face that some of these, like, back-half songs that are a bit more mid-tempo and a bit more subtle just sound sleepier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. I'm just like, I'm so amped up at this point. I'm like, oh, no, 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 not this one. No, no, not this one. <laughs> like, give yeah, me another give me my another exhibition. Yeah. Um, track 11, Judy is Staring at the Sun. This was one of the singles released off of this record. There's actually an interesting remix for the single. on the On the album... Tanya Donnelly uh, from the album or from the band Belly, uh, she sings in the chorus of this song, but on the single version, she actually sings an entire verse, yep. which I never made sense to me why they didn't just put that on the record. Yep. Um, I don't know if there was some sort of issue with regards to credit or what, but um, I really like her singing with. Rob Dickinson, I think it sounds good, and uh, I like this song. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's not a. It's actually w- probably harkens back to Chrome more than any other song on this record. 
it's probably the the song that when they this was the lead single, so probably when people heard this, were like, oh, this is just going to be a little bit cleaner version of Chrome. And like, oh no, it's not. Uh, what was what do you think uh, about uh, Judy staring at the sun? Yeah, I I, I uh, it was funny. I was listening to it and I kept thinking, what doesn't she sing a verse? What what am I missing? What, why am I so confused here? Why where's the verse that she sings? Right. <laughs> So I was more familiar with the other version of it, I guess. I don't know if that's the version they played on radio or why I'm so much more familiar with that version, but uh, kind of threw me going back and listening to it now. Uh, the thing that I like about this song on this, in the context of this record, is that it's a little bit of break from the guitars. I mean, they're mm-hmm. here, but uh, it's more bass-driven. Um, I like the 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 feel of it. It's a little bit more laid back. Um, you know, it's still driving in some in some sense. It's not like lazy, but it's like you know they just kind of like downshifted a gear, kind of when you get to the song a little bit, and it just feels a little bit effortless, which is nice, especially when you you know do the the dual vocal. It just kind of sets this nice sense of calm and feels a little bit more introspective than some mm-hmm. of the other stuff. Um, I love the pairing of the vocal, you know, uh, the, I think we've, we've always been, of all of the albums we reviewed, we're always a big fan of, uh, anytime they have a, a male and a female vocal mix. So I think right. that works. Um, yeah. My only question is why they did, why they didn't put that version on the record with, uh, her singing yeah. the second verse. Again, would have been a good question for Rob Dickinson, but he's busy, uh, designing Porsches. So can't have him on Uh whole track 12. Uh, this one fits to me better with the first half of the record i've always liked uh this song i like the dynamics of the the chorus it's not as challenging i don't think as uh some of the other stuff that's on the first half but it it pairs well in terms of like i said the intensity level i don't think the the lyrics are quite as uh interesting as say uh empty head or receive uh i like the the combination of the guitar and the drum parts in the chorus especially they they way lock in and sort of lock in for the early part of each part of the verse and then release. Yeah, it's, again, uh, the, that verse to me, it, it, it reminded me of the Pumpkins, how, you know, it's very Tom-driven, very kind of um, driving. Uh, mm-hmm. Then, But then it shifts into that pre-chorus where he goes to this lower register vocal. Um, it gets real melodic, um, mm-hmm. kind of takes a dark, a dark in a different way. Like, it's... Um, uh, you know the intro is is dark from a you know, percussive standpoint, a, a little bit of aggressive standpoint, but then the chord shift kind of turns it dark because of the chords and the way he's delivering the vocal. And then all of a sudden it goes into that the, you know the true chorus where it's really aggressive, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe one of the more aggressive sections of the record um, with how they deliver that chorus. So I, I just love that that shift between those three parts and yeah um, again i I think it it shows off his vocal uh ability really well and how he can i think at this point in the band and through that throughout the rest of the records you know he his voice becomes a character uh, in some ways or an an instrument and unto itself it's not just mixed in with the guitars it you know it becomes the focal point of of the band track 13 fizzy love i've always thought of this as a nice like sort of compliment to eat my dust it features the harmonica like that song does uh this is one of the few sort of uh quieter moments on the record so it's Mm -hmm. a it's a a reprise from the intensity of most of the record 
it's it's nice that it's a, a short song too. This could have been dragged out for uh, yeah. you know four or five minutes, but they keep it to like three and a half minutes. In another universe, it might have made a cool single, but not uh, in Catherine Wheel world. So we'll have to uh, <laughs> you know imagine that other world, which is much nicer. But um, I like the, uh, the the lyrics are cool. They're his plays on uh, love and obsessiveness. Still not sure what fizzy love is, but that's okay. There's he he makes up a lot of stuff like on Adam and Eve. I don't know what Masala Tuda is, but I like the way he sings it. So that's all that really matters. It's a nice album track. I like the inclusion of the cello. I don't mm-hmm. know if you picked up on that, but uh, it's not you know overt. It's not hitting you overhead over your head. Right. Here's here's the cello kind of thing. It's 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 played in an interesting way, and it adds a texture and a an important part of the verses. Um, I like that, you know, towards the end, you know, the last minute or so, he kind of goes into a falsetto and the sh- song shifts a little bit. It gets a little bit prettier, um, which keeps it interesting. You know, it's not the same thing over and over again, which I think helps. It, it's a, it's an interesting album track. Um, and you're right, the, the time, you know, the fact that it's only three three minutes, 30 seconds is, helps it quite a bit. I think some other bands could go on and on with a song like this that would yeah. kill it for me. And then the last uh, track on the album is Kill My Soul, which sort of returns to, the, I guess, the more metal uh, aspect of the beginning of the record. It's super metal. I mean, this, this is the beginning of this song and, the, and the, the driving, you know, various tom parts throughout the record and stuff. I mean, this just sort of encapsulates, encapsulates everything that's going on with the, I guess, the new Catherine Wheel, I guess you'd say. It's just, it's heavy without being like fast and uh, it's a little bit longer than it probably needs to be they drag it out a little bit at the end which is fine it's the last song on the record but it's a long song uh, or it's a long mm-hmm. record so and based on the extra material that they had because they released a the whole b-sides and uh unreleased song they actually recorded a lot of songs for this record but uh i i've always kind of liked this record i like what he does with his vocal in the chorus he uh bounces between sort of a lower like you mentioned like a lower register and then he goes up into almost a falsetto in parts of it Mm -hmm. you know i think this is probably in terms of range rob dickinson's most challenging and interesting record he definitely like you know the next record's a bit more restrained and then wishville is pretty much an attempt at a pop record as far as cathedral making a pop record in the alternative 90s which although i think that came out in 2000 um, but this is uh, Kill My Soul is, I believe, the proper ending for this record. I like this song a lot, whether it's the proper ending. It's tough to tell with there's so many songs on this record. I guess it does encapsulate the rest of the record pretty well. That's, you know, the idea. Um, I love, so the intro is, you know, it is, a, it's, it's on the fast side, at least from the intro standpoint when, you know, it kicks off. Um, and it's kind of a chunky riff and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. you know. In hindsight, like I kind of feel like I've heard that riff before, but then when they switch it before they play the verse, they switch to the other riff. Mm-hmm. That, that riff is awesome. Like it's a Tony Iommi riff sped up. If you listen to it, it's like dom 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 dom. It's like this really like um, almost pounding, but like uh, dark ominous sounding riff but they're playing mm-hmm. it you know kind of at a faster tempo 
they break it down a little bit to put the verse over top of it but that was one of those moments where you know i've listened to the song you know whatever dozens of times hundreds of times going back and listening to it now when they switched to that part i was like oh that's that's amazing that's just a great like that's a great riff i love the way that's played i love how it matches up between the two parts and then you know again lyrically this song is another example of you know he delivers a line like you killed my soul which you're like oh boy you know yeah <laughs> okay but then he you know he follows it up with that's pretty hard to forgive <laughs> you know it's <just> like <laughs> you killed my soul and he's like you know it's pretty hard to forgive that you know if you, if you buy into like that he's being serious about you know the melodrama of you know you actually killed my soul it's it's pretty it's almost you know funny that he follows it up that's pretty hard to forgive so those are the kinds of things where you know other bands wouldn't think to do that and it would just come off as you know like melodrama like oh boy right you know really but uh the fact that he does that it almost has a sense of humor to it which uh it really helps this song um hold up and and be you know rather timeless well i think that's what is the sort of undercurrent of this whole record is there's a lot of humor and very subtle sarcasm and and biting sort of wry uh, songwriting bits that are stuck here and there like you mentioned with the pretty hard to ignore pretty hard to forgive pretty hard to forgive and with receive and, and that song and yeah it's just i think they were just a little too smart in a lot of respects they were you know, trying to play to a Bush audience when they're really appealing to a, a much narrower crowd than that with a lot of this mm. stuff. And I did want to mention there's a song, like I said earlier, on the vinyl version called Glitter, which I've always really liked. It has this really cool tremolo guitar uh, chorus in that song. Are you familiar with that track, Jay? I'm not. Where? Uh, where how? Where can you get that? Uh, you can find it on. It's on uh, Groove Shark. If you ever use that for your streaming audio. Because I can't use Spotify at work, so mm. it's on Groove Shark. Um, I have it also in my in my music collection. So have uh, you just heard it recently? I just listened. I just revisited it just to familiarize myself again. I can understand uh, why it wasn't included on the album as far as the official version, only on the vinyl, like as a bonus track, because it doesn't have as it's it's a bit more mid tempo, um, and it's not quite as uh, anthemic as a lot of these songs are. Mm. But it just has this really cool tremolo guitar part in the chorus. And you'll know what I'm talking about if you hear it. And if anybody out there is familiar with that song or if they seek it out. I don't know if it's on Spotify because it's it's only a B-side. Or it's only an, a bonus album track. So it's not a mm. B-side. It wasn't released as a on a single or anything as far as I can tell. Unless there was another single released off this album. So, Well, there's, um, a, um, there's a single for Way Down. And it's got Chrome and broken head on it yeah probably live versions of those songs those are from uh obviously the album chrome came up oh those. yeah they're live okay yeah I would put those on the there. only song that i know that was a b-side that was like a new song was angelo nero which actually was released on the likes cat like cat and dogs b-sides album but that was right. a b-side for this record that's why i'm confused why glitter wouldn't have been put on like like cats and dogs because that was the whole point of that record yeah i don't know i, I i'm not quite sure what the what the thought was in, in not putting it out on that record. But they had a, other B sides which were not included on that as well. So and rarities and, like, and other tracks. Like Cats and Dogs features uh Heel Part Two. 
Right, which is the radio version of Heal with like mm. the last three minutes of the song cut off or something like that. Mm. Also features as a bonus hidden track, The Spirit of Radio by Rush. Yep. A very excellent cover of that album. So uh, let's wrap this up, Jay. We're going to do our patented pending rating scale. Were the album better EP, decent single? Where are you at? Well, these Love Fest records are going to make this segment of the show kind of irrelevant. Um, I think it's a great record. I, I don't have a whole lot. It's too long. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. Um, legitimately, between this and some of the material on like Cats and Dogs, they could have made two records and oh, just yeah. you know released them a year apart and would have been, you know, we wouldn't have had to wait so long for Adam and Eve. Um, that, you know, that probably would have been the right thing to do. But uh, there's not a song on this that I don't I don't enjoy listening to. So, full record for me. I could probably trim like two songs and I'd be happy. Um, but like I said, the only reason why some of the back half loses my interest is because I just got my head beat in by the first half of the record. So, I'm yeah. sort of like, you know, a little punchy after that. So, uh, it's, tough but, to, it's tough to sequence a record like this, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot here to take in. It's kind of like the. I know we've had different opinions on this, but it feels a little bit like the failure record where there's just so much to take in that, you know, it, it's hard to say what song you would, you would cut, but at the same point, you got to kind of re- like recognize that not everybody is a, is, is able to absorb the amount of information that these records have. So yes, uh, it's exhausting. Um, it, it can be exhausting to make it to this full record with your full attention to it. I'll tell you, it does make me want to seek out the vinyl version that apparently has, you know, the only known uh, location of glitter for uh, uh, for listening pleasure. So uh, I know that they re-released Ferment uh, as a uh, vinyl release with extra tracks in 2010. I don't know if there are plans for the other albums to be released on vinyl, but... Uh, I'd like to get that. So if somebody wants to send it my way, please uh, feel free to do so. I'll give you my address to shoot me an email. I'm assuming these are not cheap on eBay, so I'm not going to even go there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's that. So if you like what you heard, please consider consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And, of course, you can head over also to digmeoutpodcast.com to suggest an album for us to review by hitting our request a review page. Uh, the Love Fest will continue as we're going to be tackling uh, a favorite uh, next week. We'll have some interesting words to say about it. Maybe it won't be such a love fest. Who knows? Uh, spoiler alert, it will be. But um, hopefully have some interesting things to say. Otherwise, it's just 45 minutes of us kissing ass. And uh, that's not interesting for anybody to listen to. So uh, we hope that you've enjoyed our <laughs> review and revisitation of Catherine Will's Happy Days. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. 